So we're going to go ahead and get things started. Hi, I'm Henry Jenkins, the director of the Comparative Media Studies Program, and I'm filling in here today for David Thorburn, the director of the, the Communications Forum here at MIT, which is the host of this event. David is away in Utrecht on leave this, this term, and uh, I've sort of been left manning the ship for, on his behalf. But it gives me the great pleasure to be able to host today this public conversation with Frank Moss, uh, the recently appointed uh, director of the MIT Media Lab. It's been and a year. It's a year. Wow, a, how fast the time flies. Holy mackerel, you know. Well, compare, compared to the long reign of your predecessor, it seems like a very brief moment so far. But uh, Yeah, if this is a brief moment, uh, go ahead. So, so anyway, um, I, according to the sheet in front of me, which may or may not be right, uh, my, our, in addition to being director of the Media Lab, he's a Jerome P. B. Wiesner Professor of Media Technology, and his honors include Ernest and Young's Entrepreneur of the Year Award and being one of Forbes Magazine's leaders for tomorrow. So, Frank... Tell us a little bit of how you came to be the director of the Media Lab. What's, what's your background? What, what brought you into this operation? Okay, it's a long story. I'll try and keep it short. But uh, Henry, thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. I welcome everyone. And uh, you know, I just want to open up by saying, too, that uh, I think the fact that we're here together talking, I think, is an indication of kind of a new era at the Media Lab a bit, one where uh, the Media Lab, which in some ways had been its isolated own island at the other end of Ames Street, is opening up to MIT and the rest of the world. So I'm really glad that you're here, and I look forward to sharing the story of the Media Lab and where we're going in the future. Um, I, so I'm, a, uh, I'm not an academic, um, uh, although I got my degree here at MIT about 30 years ago, um, PhD in aeronautical engineering, and that was a time when uh, they'd, uh, aeronautical engineers were not in good shape, but they were pumping Tasty Freeze in California. Uh, the moon program had, you know, was winding down and it had winded down. So uh, I was playing around with computers uh, as part of my uh, thesis uh, at the Draper Lab here and uh, headed off to a career in computers and software. Began my career at IBM Research and then after that left when it was not a popular time to leave IBM back in 1984 and uh, got excited about the world of entrepreneurship and startups. I was uh, start off at a company called Apollo Computer. Uh, anybody here heard of Apollo Computer? They, oh, good. Okay, they, we had the world's first workstations, uh, and then blew it. Uh, but that was a, a great experience, and uh, and other such companies. Uh, by the '90s, I had the opportunity to lead a company <laughs> called Tivoli Systems in Austin, Texas, and uh, uh, enjoyed Texas as well as uh, forming this company, and sold it in 1996 to IBM, uh, and then. Uh, took it public before that, sold it to IBM, and then merged it. Uh, and then by the end of the 90s, decided to come back here to, uh, to Boston, And which time I turned 50. Uh, so this is a long story I told you, but I'm 50 already, so it's not too bad. Uh, and when I turned 50, uh, at my birthday party, my kids looked at me and they said, well, you've been selling software to fat white guys in IT departments for all of your life. Uh, that was real, you know, something you really want to hear from your kids, you know. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, but they, they netted it out pretty well, I think. You know, they're pretty sharp. Uh, and they, they reduced this to a simple thing. They said, when are you going to do something for people, uh, you know, to really get back to society? And this is a true story. And, and I had been thinking about this and talking about it with them. So I really took time off for about a year and explored um, really what opportunities I had given my background in technology and running businesses to really make a difference, I began to read about the Human Genome Project and how information technology was being applied there. 
and got interested in that, hooked up with uh, folks here at MIT and elsewhere, and uh, co-founded a drug discovery company called Infinity Pharmaceuticals here in town, in Cambridge, which today has three cancer drugs in clinical trial. Uh, and it was one of the best experiences of my life, uh, being able to apply my knowledge to really make a difference for people. Uh, and that went very well. The company actually went public about uh, two or three months ago. But about a year and a half ago, I began to realize that since I'm not a chemist or a biologist, uh, that maybe my uh, contribution at Infinity uh, had, had really reached the steepest point, and I began to look around for something else to do when I got a call from people at the MIT Media Lab, actually a headhunter saying, how would you like to be director of the MIT Media Lab, and I laughed. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'd, I'd known the Media Lab from the past, as many people had for, um, in one way or another, for its uh, uh, idiosyncratic reputation, um, both for better or for worse, and, you know, I, I, you know, I hung up. <laughs> no, but uh, quite seriously, uh, you know, I, I, at first I really uh, didn't think this would be a good idea for someone who had actually spent 30 years in industry. But um, they hounded me. Uh, they had a, a, a committee of people from the, from the media lab who were looking for a new director. I came in, and, you know, after one or two visits, it occurred to me that this might be the platform, uh, the opportunity to work with young people at MIT, terrific young people, but also to have a platform for uh, how technology can help people. Uh, a place where the research being done is not only cool and not only weird and wonderful, but really uh, can have a deeper impact on, on people. And uh, I said yes. And it's been a year, and it's been, it's been very interesting. Very good. So I was getting ready for this. I went back to Stuart Brand's uh, book on the Media Lab, written, what, more than 20 years ago, I think, mm -hmm. when the lab was just starting. And I thought it might be interesting to read a few passages from it and talk about where the lab has gone since that time and where you see it going. But the place to begin is this title, the Media Lab Inventing the Future at MIT. And when we talked the other day, you said you had a new spin on what that phrase meant. So do you want to share a little of that? Well, sure. I haven't read the book. I mean, I, I think somebody told me if I read that book, I might never take the job. So, uh, But uh, I, I look forward to, uh, to reading some passages there. It would be, it'd be interesting. Um, People talked about the Media Lab inventing the future. Um, well, actually, it wasn't the Media Lab. It's the graduate students at the Media Lab who do that, and the undergraduates who come through. We have three of them sitting here today. One of the secrets of the Media Lab is uh, the faculty, as wonderful as they are, are not the people who invent the future. The, the future is invented by the students who come through the Media Lab and are exposed to this enormously creative and open and, in some sense, iconoclastic environment, and then just go and do crazy things. Uh, they go and do what they wish. Uh, and they follow their interests, they follow their excitement, and they build, uh, they build instead of think. So um, they talked about inventing the future. Well, the future's been invented in some way. The future that Nicholas Negroponte envisioned, which was that actually early on, I think this is in the book, that television and print media and telephone would converge. Uh, and I guess it sounded very <laughs> crazy back then, but um, like... Uh, that's it, <laughs> right? And so that's happened. Uh, and uh, the other wonders in communications technology and human user interface technology that the Media Lab um, researched, I think, have happened. Um, but, but right now, I think there's an opportunity at the Media Lab to look at inventing a better future. Uh, and I think it's wonderful that we all can communicate with anybody else at any given time in any place, that we can access any piece of entertainment on any device, 
uh, that we can buy anything online and, and, and do all those wonderful things. It's changed our life. But I think you really have to ask the question, a couple of questions was. One is, has technology really impacted us at a deep level? And another question I often ask audiences, and I will this audience here, is given the technology that has come out of this wave of innovation over the past 20 years, is your life fundamentally better today than it was 20 years ago? So I'll look for a raise of hands here. Is your life fundamentally better today than 20 years ago? Some of these were six and in kindergarten. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah. Okay, so we'll only take anyone who's greater than 20 years old. <laughs> okay, there's one. Okay, we got a couple here. Okay. Uh, well, my average group, um, who average greater than 20 years old, um, the, the number of people who raise their hands is surprisingly small. And uh, I, I find that curious, and I keep doing this, and, I, and of course I ask why when we have the time. Uh, and uh, people are stressed. Uh, people, in some sense, uh, have a very concerned view about the future today. People are concerned about the future. People, in some sense, are afraid of the future. When I was growing up, uh, people were excited about the future. <laughs> uh, and I just don't say that as, a, a, you know, as an old timer, saying things were great. Um, but it's really true. There was a lot of anticipation and a lot of positive feeling for what technology was going to do. Boy, the Sputnik was out there, and it dates me, doesn't it? And people were very optimistic. But today, for all the wonders that we have, and it's like unbelievable People are afraid of the future. And so I see the opportunity to take a platform like the Media Lab, to take the unbelievable resource we have available in the students and the faculty, the sponsors who we have, and then to direct this toward a proposition for inventing a better future, a way in which technology can impact people at a, at a deeper level. And I think that really begins with people who are disabled, either mentally or physically, uh, perhaps developmentally, people who are disadvantaged socially, economically, or people who are disenfranchised from the system in some way. And I firmly believe, and when you look across the Media Lab, you'll see a lot of projects that, that target those, including, uh, including this thing that came out of the Media Lab, the $100 laptop. And so I believe that by targeting the disabled and you know, the disadvantaged, the disenfranchised, we're going to really actually end up inventing a number of the great you know, advances that impact society as a whole, but at the same time, you know, be doing the right thing. I call that translational technologies, the idea that you begin here. And that's kind of interesting because in the past, people have really taken technologies, they, they try and find technologies that apply broadly, and then ultimately they're brought down to the disadvantaged, you know, and they find their way down the system in the end. So that's a long answer to your question, uh, Henry, to give one word change, which is inventing a better future. Uh, beginning in many cases with the disabled and the disadvantaged, and then looking for applications to a broader society. So as we go along, we're going to be seeing some examples of the kind of work that comes out of this idea of inventing a better future. Right. But uh, to, just to spend a moment on the past, and sort of this is the past when it was our, about to be the future. Uh, this, is, uh, this, this is the passage from the introduction to Stuart Brand's book. He says, the Media Lab aims to reframe the way the individual addresses the world, and the world addresses the individual. Is that hardware proceeding a creation or substituting for it? Sponsors have put millions into place, expecting long-range but nevertheless commercial innovations or information. Are they getting their money's worth? If there is a clear idea at the heart of the Media Lab's research goals, will it emerge crystalline and focusing or blend back into the blur of technological drift? What is that clear idea exactly? The Media Lab is a huge public bet by MIT, by the Myriad sponsors, by the researchers who are, taking risk, are risking major portions of their careers. 
The idea that communication technologies are converging in the world, there's that converging idea. Mm -hmm. The idea of convening communication disciplines at MIT under one conceptual roof. The specific people that are gathering to work on it, they all have to be right to get a win, demo or die. And that's right. how he begins, ends the, the introductory chapter, the book. So looking back 20 years, I wonder, are we closer to answering the sorts of questions that Stuart Brand poses? How would you describe the process that the lab's gone through over that time? Well, uh, you know, I'm probably, uh, you know, not the best to, you know, to go back through the history step by step, but I'll just give you the impression that one gets coming in and then looking back at the history. There are a couple of things that Stuart Brand addressed there, and I think um, uh, certainly behind it was the fact that uh, the Media Lab is sponsored almost 100% by industry. And in that sense, it's different from the rest of MIT, which is sponsored by about $500 million worth of government money, roughly speaking. There is some industry money. But the opposite is true of the Media Lab. So even going back to, so Negroponte's original vision was that corporations, in order to discover the future, as it were, in order to kind of understand what the possibilities were, would pay handsomely anywhere from $200,000 to $750,000 a year as a membership to come into the Media Lab and to observe what is going on, to really rub shoulders with the students, rub shoulders with the faculty, and I think the method that emerged, maybe even beginning then, was that students would express their ideas in terms of demos. And that, in fact, that would be the communication mechanism in many ways. And that through this process of serendipity, and I've heard Nicholas use that term, and I've heard that term used many times by, the, by our, our faculty at the Media Lab, that things would happen. That although the student might not be demoing something that would be informed by the sponsor's particular problems, the sponsor would look at it and go, wow, that's, that's really cool. And there are great examples of that that happened in the 20 years after that. One example was a motion table um, that was a sensor table that was developed for Penn and Teller so that it could actually, they sit in the table and one of them would make motions and, you know, and, and, and kind of gesture and sensors, which were then in their early stage, would pick that up and translate that into images which would be used for entertainment or as part of their act. Well, um, an automobile, uh, a company that provided automobile parts and, and equipment saw that and ended up putting that into the uh, passenger side airbag sensor system that's used in every car today. That's serendipity. The students who produced that or the faculty had no idea. Uh, and there are other examples of that. Lego Mindstorms um, came out of a project in Lifelong Kindergarten. Uh, I don't think anybody had envisioned Lego early on or had envisioned uh, that kind of application. And I think that worked very well. If you think about the 80s and the 90s, this might have been a little bit before some of your time, particularly in the 90s, people were uh, companies, and I was in a company at that time, I was in the, were saying, what is all this digital stuff? I'm, I'm afraid. What's the impact of this? You know, what's going on? Is commerce going to change? And therefore, I think the value proposition of just coming into the media lab, hanging out, seeing the demos, participating in sponsor, uh, sponsor um, um, demonstrations and weeks was, were great. Um, and I think that was a model that worked very well, and during the 90s, the Media Lab was flourishing. In fact, they had to really shut down sponsorship because so many people wanted to come in and just rub shoulders with the students and the faculty and just be part of this. 2001 hits, and I think that's probably a, a milestone point in the development of a lot of things, including the Media Lab, and companies are now looking at all this from a different perspective. They're not saying, gee, do I want to pay a whole bunch of money to hang out and see what happens, they're having to justify investments based on that dreaded um, acronym ROI, return on investment, and impact on products. 
it provides a real challenge to the media lab because we are not set up to actually respond to particular product needs, nor if we did, would that preserve the value of the Media Lab or would these students here uh, probably want to be part of this if what they were handed when they came in was a directed, uh, a directed project from a sponsor saying, go build this or that. So it becomes a real challenge as we move forward in the Media Lab to maintain the same vision that Negroponte and Wiesner had at the very beginning to have this open very creative environment, informed but not directed by industry, to meet their needs, to continue the funding and the support which allows us to do these projects, but provide the environment to the students and to the faculty that is unique about the Media Lab. That's my job, <laughs> essentially, is to achieve that balance. I'm optimistic. It's tough. There are a number of sponsors who will not go along with this new way of doing things, but, um, but, but we're, we're fortunate in some sense uh, and I think this is important for all of us here at MIT, that due to the economy and due to the way things have developed, most companies have begun to cut off their front end of the pipeline, the very, very basic research, advanced research. So there's need for MIT, there's need for the MIT Media Lab. Uh, ideas need to be generated. There, there are places, but we have to work very hard to create a connection between sponsors and this kind of research. And it's working quite well. It requires us to do things differently than the Media Lab did it. Um, back in uh, 1987, but we can still do it and maintain, I think, the environment. So I think that's one aspect of that, uh, of that uh, passage that, that, that stuck out for me, Henry. I don't yeah, know that, no, that's, that's very yeah. much on target. The right. second one's very brief, but it it's follows exactly on what you were just talking about. Spran wrote, again, at the beginning of the lab's history, the Media Lab has a different function than a business. Chasing horizons is its job. It sells not what works, but what might work. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of, again, this notion of what you can do inside an academic research center that's different from what you do pursuing a bottom line you know, ROI in a, in a company space. Absolutely. Um, what, is, what is the measure of that? I mean, you know, when, when sponsors come in, what do they hope to get out of it? And what I say every time I begin a sponsor presentation and we bring people in is you know, the Media Lab is successful after the end of the day or a week or a month or a year if you're asking questions that you didn't think about asking when you entered the room, when you, when you began working. And I think it's kind of that simple. Coming from business, a uh, 30-year career, um, I guess I found that we really screwed up in business if we didn't ask the right questions at the right time. Not that we you know, didn't develop a particular thing, but if you're asking the right questions, and I, I think that's really the role of basic research in general, and I think that continues to be the role of the Media Lab. And I think we, we will continue to measure ourselves by are we enabling our sponsors to ask the right questions that they wouldn't have thought of asking. All right. The third passage I wanted to read comes from the very end of the book. And this is a passage that upset most of my colleagues in the humanities very much when the book first came out. And I think it poses some questions. I knew this would happen. Yeah. <laughs> so this is about the title of the section was Humanism Through Machines. And it sort of described this idea uh, and I'll just get to the core of it. It says, the Media Lab is inventing the technology of diversity. Some institutions that enjoyed industrial side uniformity will no doubt regard it as a technology of perversity. This happened with personal computers. Corporations fought them. Unions fought them. Soviet Union still is fighting them. But personal computers were a technology of separation originally. Current Media Lab technologies enhance connectedness, yet it also manages to enhance autonomy. Connecting, diversifying, increasing human complexity rather than reducing it, these are the instruments of culture. And what had happened at the time, the reason humanists, I think, reacted to that passage was 
we sort of thought we were in the business of studying culture and creating culture and engaged with it. And here was this group in the media lab that hadn't necessarily been connected with the faculty in our school that was sort of claim, laying claim that through technology, they were inventing the, the future of culture. And I think you and I have talked a lot about right. the right. vision you have of the future where the media lab is much more connected to the rest of MIT, including our school, than it has been previously. Okay. Uh, well, I guess there are a number of uh, layers to that, uh, you know, responding to that. Uh, you know, does, you know what, what is the connection between technology and culture at the deepest level? Um, but one thing is for sure, uh, that, that connection cannot be completely invented at the media lab or any place else. Uh, I mean, the Media Lab, um, I think, uh, serves a very useful purpose in that it brings together a wide diversity of people, and it does. Within the, the halls of the Media Lab, we have social scientists, we have, uh, we have artists, uh, we have designers, we have engineers, we have um, um, neuroscientists, our most recent faculty member. And so we're able to bring all those things together and explore the possibilities of technology and people in a way that I think is quite rare because you can bring all those people together in one place. However, that doesn't mean because you can bring all those people together in one place that there, aren't, that there isn't important to interact with all the other places because there's a tremendous amount to be learned. And I think at the bottom of your question and maybe the concern was that the Media Lab maybe, and I'm only speculating here, tended to see itself as an island where by getting all this together it, it, it could give the answers. Uh, and uh, I guess I'm not sure whether that was what they thought or not, but having come from industry over the year where collaboration is important and connections on the outside, I fundamentally don't buy that concept. And so you're proud of what you have. You believe that you have something different than elsewhere. But we need to reach out at the Media Lab to uh, not only your department, but the bioengineering department, cognitive, brain and cognitive sciences. We have connections here. Uh, we're working, believe it or not, with CSAIL. And I understand that uh, my predecessors often had a little bit of trouble getting along with those guys. I can't imagine why. Um, and, uh, and I think we only benefit from it. I think everyone else, too. Uh, you know, the real goal is to provide our students. We have a couple of uh, customers, if you will, okay? Uh, first and foremost is our students. If the Media Lab does not provide the most, you know, one of the most unique and a truly unique experience for students, it will not exist. And so if these guys and, or their predecessors don't want to come, what do you have? Uh, and, and the students want to collaborate. The students want to collaborate not only within the Media Lab, they want to connect out to the rest of MIT, they want to connect out to other universities, uh, other organizations. So you've got to collaborate if you want to meet the needs of your students. The sponsors want that as well. I think the faculty should. So a big theme for me and the Media Lab over the next five, ten years is to create uh, as many contacts, as many connections, and as much collaboration as we possibly can. Uh, we're going to work together to invent a better future. That's great. I think everyone in the room is excited to hear the opportunity of building bridges with the Media Lab and the rest of MIT. It's, uh, uh, so the term media was probably one of, you know, one, when I spoke to Negroponte some years ago, he said he had to fight for that word when the Media Lab was being established, that people weren't sure media was the core issue for the time that you were living through or maybe adequately described what the lab did. We've obviously lived in a, the last 20 years of development is one in which media has become absolutely more and more central right. to every change that's taken place in the society. Right. So I'm wondering today if we were to describe what the media and Media Lab stands for, what, what does that mean to you as a director that, of the lab? That, that, that's a good question. Well, at some point, um, you, you look at a name and you don't, you, know, you don't try and do too much to make it make sense. I mean, it has, it has an, a, a meaning at one time, but it may lose that meaning. 
Uh, I know when I was at IBM, there was a debate as to whether or not we should continue to call IBM international business machines. Right? That seemed quite out, outmoded, especially since most of its revenue was not coming from business machines anymore. <laughs> um, but yet, uh, people valued the, um, you know, the, people valued the name and it, and it meant something. Um, I've heard it expressed that what the Media Lab is working on is technology-mediated experiences. And so I don't think just of media here, meaning newspapers, magazines, television, film. I think of media as meaning you know, new uses of technology to mediate experiences between people and other people and between people in the world. And in many ways, I think uh, the Media Lab is dedicated to changing the way in which people interact with one another, in which they communicate, in which they socialize in which they study, in which they uh, produce, and in other ways, I think, mediating the relationship of them to the world around them. And, uh, and there are many, many new technologies that are taking place today that enable that mediation to be more intimate. And I think the intimacy of the mediation between people in the world, between people and people, is another way of faking it to say the word media lab still makes sense. Did that play at all? That sounds good to me. Okay. How did that sound? <laughs> so. uh, fair, I think. Uh, <laughs> I think I get a five for that one. Well, and when, I, when, we describe, when we said we were going to have this conversation, everyone said, oh, you're going to ask him about the $100 laptop, the mm -hmm. one laptop per child, mm -hmm. and you brought one here. So I wondered, that's becoming the flagship project, what everyone knows the Media Lab's right. involved with. So right. why don't you tell us just a little bit about what's going on with that and, and what you see as the future of that project? Well, it's, it's a good story. It's got uh, a little bit of drama, maybe a lot of drama, uh, and... Uh, it's got people and, and, and events and things that surround this baby here. Um, but uh, actually, when I, was, uh, when I got that call, uh, would you like to join the Media Lab, the first thing I did was hop on the Media Lab website, and I saw the $100 laptop. And uh, at that time, it was a Media Lab project. This was um, late 2005. And uh, this had originally come out of a long history of research at the Media Lab related to kids and learning, basically. Uh, Seymour Papert um, you know, kind of co coined, the term, coined the term constructivism, and you probably know that better than I do, which is one of the best ways to learn and to create is by doing. Uh, and that was a you know, tremendous uh, focus of the Media Lab over the years, a lifelong kindergarten project and so forth. And, uh, and I think at some point, uh, Nicholas Negroponte and others at the Media Lab concluded that if they were going to implement that idea or theory at large scale, something would have to be done to put in the hands of kids, uh, you know, in a more broad way, technology that they could use to actually experiment with that. Uh, and at $1,000 or $2,000 a pop, uh, the laptops that we have today were not possible. So to make a long story short, uh, Nicholas and the, and, and the folks at the Media Lab cooked up not just the technology idea, which was, and I think they probably just said, they picked a number of $100. <laughs> and they said, if it's $100, uh, then I could probably sell a million of these, uh, or more, maybe millions of these, to governments. $100 million, that's a, that's a reachable number. And then they could distribute it to, uh, to their kids. And then we could begin to, uh, in a sense, experiment with this. And the amazing thing is, this is about to happen. And so it's happening in a little bit different way that was anticipated. Uh, what was decided organizationally was that because this was actually building a production piece of hardware and software, that in the wisdom of, of MIT primarily, that this would be spun off as a not-for-profit organization 
and not further developed in the media lab. I think the concern on the part of MIT, and it was reasonable, was that, you know, if you're competing, if you're pr producing something like this, you might be competing with Dell or you might be competing with, uh, with Microsoft or competing with HP or whatever. Uh, and that also it's kind of not the job of MIT to develop products. Uh, that's, that's the job of other folks. So for whatever reason, it was spun off as a not-for-profit not called One Laptop Per Child. A number of people went from the media lab to One Laptop Per Child about the time I came. Um, and they've been busy um, developing this piece of hardware and software. And, uh, and it's about to go into its beta 2 version pretty soon. This was a beta 1 version. And if you come into the media lab, you'll see dozens of these around as they're being played with. Um, and as you probably know from what you've read, uh, Nicholas and the One Laptop Per Child people have managed to connect with a number of governments and countries and actually have them commit to large-scale shipments. This is being produced, designed, and being designed here in Cambridge, but produced in China. Uh, and the number, as I understand it now, is about 125 bucks. So they didn't quite reach the $100 level. Uh, it, re it received a great deal of controversies, as I'm sure you're probably aware of at first. Uh, and I think that the primary controversy arose from, is the <coughs> best way to spend money in developing countries $100 to give kids laptops? Or is that a waste of money? And uh, a number of countries have said that's not the right way to go. Others have embraced the idea. But what's interesting for me, I think, and you know, I'm going to turn this on, although um, it's going to be almost impossible to, to see what goes on here, uh, is the principle that I talked about before. By setting out to produce something for kids in developing countries, uh, they actually have created here what I think are technologies that are going to be standard in our laptop computers within less than five years. And when you hear about these things, you'll probably say, I can't believe that, my, that laptops don't have that today. So I think this is the quintessential example of where by targeting, say, a fringe in society of one sort or another. And so the first thing you see, she's booting up now, so this is, this is real here. It'll take a while. This is a beta one version. Um, are these rabbit ears. Uh, and these rabbit ears are antennas uh, that enable a mesh connection network between the laptops themselves. So if kids are sitting you know, out in a village in, in Africa somewhere or in South America and they're, uh, you know, and they're you know, separated by less than a kilometer or so, they can actually communicate directly with one another. This can be intermediately routed to somewhere else and ultimately you can be connected with uh, a satellite connection in, in, you know, at the center of town somewhere. Um, and so this concept of peer-to-peer -peer networking in the absence of, okay, in the absence of a centralized um, communication infrastructure, I think is not just a good idea if you're in a third world country, but I think it's a good idea here. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and this was developed originally at, uh, in the viral communication group at, uh, at the Media Lab. It's been around for a while, and now it's finding its implementation in a system that costs $125 a piece. I mean, I think it's amazing. Second thing um, that you'll notice, and it's still taking time to boot up, but, but if we can get this, is a daylight readable display. Uh, how many of you folks have taken your laptop outside to the beach, whatever, and tried to read it or do work? I mean, totally frustrating. But if you're sitting outside in a village in Africa somewhere, you don't even have shelter or a home, you know, you, you have to have a daylight readable display. They confronted the problem, and this came out of technology uh, developed by uh, Mary Lou Jepson, who is a display, uh, does research and displays at the Media Lab, uh, for how you can incorporate both a, uh, a, color, um, a color display, a dual mode display. One is color, and the other is black and white, high, high resolution black and white that's daylight readable. I don't know if we're there yet. Um, 
so um, the second major innovation, daylight readable displays that I'm sure we'll be, be seeing in laptops within four or five years, and I will welcome that. Um, third innovation, um, around power. Uh, duh, when the screen is not changing, uh, power is not being drawn. And they looked across the board at functions within this computer that, um, that seek to minimize the amount of power that's drawn and to maximize the amount of time that you can operate on the battery. And I'm told that we're looking at eight, eight hours right now um, for a battery charge. That's excellent. The laptop actually gets a lot more publicity for its original hand crank. And now they're looking at different uh, technologies for producing power here. But I think this um, power conservation schemes that are in here will be in use in laptops, uh, maybe even mobile phones throughout the world. Another innovation, which I think is probably going to be the most profound, is the user interface. Uh, and you know, I'm not sure I'll be able to give you a, a, or show a demo here today, but the user interface is a complete rethinking of how you interact with computers that puts the child at the center. And so what you, you don't, this is not a desktop metaphor. What you have on your computer with Windows and other operating systems is desktop metaphor. This is a metaphor that pictures yourself at the center and a network of other people that you're communicating with. And the kinds of functions, whether it's social networking, whether it's communications, whether it's sharing homework, uh, whether it's accessing books or whatever that you want to use, that you want to be involved in. And, uh, and I, I'm really impressed by this uh, user interface. We're working with OLPC uh, to advance this and, 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 to, uh, and to, uh, uh, you know, to enhance this kind of interface. But I think there's a possibility that the One Laptop Per Child project will produce a brand new uh, paradigm for user interface in a way that hasn't been introduced in over 25 years. Um, other cool things about it is uh, um, the physical uh, configuration. Uh, turn it like this, and you have a book kind of configuration. And I won't show it here, but you can actually rotate it and push a button here. You can use it vertically. You can use it horizontally. So the three functions of, of this uh, at the end of the day are as a book, where you can have every book uh, that you'd ever want to have here as a communication device with yourself at the center. Uh, and then third, as really a vehicle for experimenting with the concepts of constructivism and how kids can learn outside of schools uh, with technology such as this. Tell us about the green plastic there. I mean, it seems to me this automatically changes the way we think about this technology to have something that has the kind of plastic we associate with a child's toy as opposed to the metallic that we've sort of come to think of this fragile device that we carry around with. Well, I, I'm not the expert. Um, I, I think, you know, Walter Bender and Nicholas could probably give you a better idea, but they spent a lot of time with designers. Uh, and the whole idea is to make this as, as comfortable and as approachable uh, for children as you possibly can. And so this is what comes out of it. I mean, many studies that they've had with kids and a lot of focus on the design of this, I think. It's a, it's a media lab sensibility, and I think uh, they brought many years of experience that they brought in some of the world's uh, most respected designers and, and, uh, and created this. Great. Well, you brought some of your graduate students with us today, so why don't we, who, what's on first? Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about what, okay. the, one of the projects? And okay, well, I'm getting pointed to uh, Adam, who probably, okay, they're, <laughs> they're pointing to one another, so I'll, I'll, uh, I'll spin this here. And, uh, well, let me tell you about, um, you know, maybe one way to begin this is to uh, talk a, a little bit about some of the major areas that what yes, the Media Lab idea. is involved with. So, for, so from a big picture, uh, we're trying to invent a better future. And we're looking for design principles and basic ideas that, that we can explore and that others can explore that, um, that enable technology to contribute to a better future. And I think uh, the first design principle um, that 
that I'd really like to point to is intimacy or intimate interfaces. For years, the Media Lab and others have been looking at the interfaces between people and technology. But given advances in silicon technology, in, uh, in biotechnology, in nanotechnology, the opportunity to uh, create a more inter intimate interface between people and technology, between people and the world is there. Uh, and we have a number of projects at the Media Lab that look at intimate interfaces in a number of different ways. Uh, and one of, the, I think, the great examples is the biomechatronics group, which we have represented here today, which actually looks at an interface between a person and a prosthetic, if you will, uh, and other devices that can become part of the person and actually enable them to an amputee to achieve normal mobility or others to achieve, uh, you know, augmented mobility. So intimate interfaces of all types, tangible media is one of our groups. Um, we have groups that look at interfaces uh, uh, at various different levels, and we have that represented here, and we'll, we'll talk about that briefly, and I guess we'll get a little presentation uh, from Helmut. Uh, another um, major area that we look at is kind of new and interesting applications of the same theory that led to the $100 laptop is that how can creativity and learning influence and change our lives in a different way? Uh, the uh, Opera of the Future group, the group that gave rise to a, a project called Hyper Instruments, has been exploring how the creation of music can actually influence many different aspects of our life. Uh, and, and Adam Boulanger is going to talk about that in a bit. Um, so it's really pushing the envelope on the concept of creativity, learning, and its impact on people and the arts. Uh, third um, area uh, is a, just a, a, what I call simplicity and design. How can we look at a lot of the common elements that we have in our environment and rethink them through in new and simple ways? And one of the most, they're all amazing, but one of the most amazing projects at the Media Lab for me uh, looks at simplicity from the point of view of how do we reinvent the automobile? How do we think about new simple design principles uh, that can change the way we think about transportation in the automobile and then ultimately even think about simpler uh, and, and much more profound ways in which the automobile integrates with the city. And that's Ryan, he'll be telling us about that. So with that, why don't we just turn it over to these folks. Uh, Adam, do you want to start? Yeah, sure. Okay, great. You want to take this or are you going to do it from here? Okay, great. Adam, you want to introduce yourself a little bit? That, sure. You know, a minute or two would be great. Great, so my name is Adam Boulanger, and I'm a PhD student at the Media Lab coming from the Opera of the Future group. Uh, my background actually is in music technology uh, and healthcare <coughs> applications. So what I'm looking at is how not only we can create sort of new experiences in, in music with facilitative instruments and composing softwares, but actually how we can interject those into a, uh, into a treatment and intervention scenario uh, and actually rely on those same technologies to generate information on what's taking place cognitively, physically within that uh, intervention. Uh, but I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. Basically, how I wanted to start is just by um, sort of giving an opinion, is that one area where sort of technology and the pervasiveness of technology has, in my opinion, absolutely failed uh, is to make us fundamentally more expressive and creative people. Uh, when you think about sort of expression, the difference between expression and communication, uh, you realize that there's something lacking in the artworks and the people that are making artworks at this point in time, in the audience and artist relationship and our opinions of what it is to be an artist and uh, what the opportunities are for anybody to become an artist, uh, things really haven't changed. And uh, in our work in the Hyper Instruments group, 
we're developing facilitative technologies to really break this, to break this mold. Uh, and so it's not just sort of demos of interesting gadgets or sort of new opportunities with toys, but really it's sort of a system of thinking. How can we fundamentally change the culture of what it means to be creative and expressive with technology? Uh, and the Hyper Instruments group, or, or Opera of the Future group, really sort of cut its stuff, uh, stuff um, with projects where we're outfitting uh, virtuosic musicians with very sort of high and sophisticated sensor systems to create sort of a new generation of instruments to extend their capabilities. So here is the idea that let's work with experts uh, such as Yo-Yo Ma and develop an instrument where every nuance of his position and movement is being recorded uh, and then use that to drive sort of new, new composition opportunities where he can drive computerized music in addition to uh, you know, being the sort of expert interpreter that he is. And this project really sort of exposed that with these types of technologies, you can create new opportunities, but really what's the scope of that, uh, of, of the use of that technology if it's for a virtuoso, if it's for an expert. Uh, so the sort of other side of this uh, paradigm is uh, taking place now where we're developing tools for everybody, facilitative composition instruments and applying them into very diverse communities. So uh, actually my work at the group started at Tewksbury State Hospital where I was working with Todd Macover and uh, a software system called Hyperscore, which is a composing tool, and applying that composing tool in workshops with physical health and uh, patients uh, in the mental health department as well. So to give you a quick idea about what Hyperscore is, basically allows you to paint compositions. So what you see in the top are sort of little note drop melodies uh, that each get assigned a color. And then you're painting uh, those melodies in line uh, in the interface. Uh, now, this of course wouldn't make sense because the notes just stack up and would be sort of a harmonic uh, mess. But the person who developed Hyperscore with Todd, Mary Farbood, uh, her research interests were really in sort of complex modeling of the rules of harmony. And basically, she shrunk the entire scope of Western um, music harmonic practice down into algorithms that could fit compositions to that theory. So basically, it helps you make good sounding music. Uh, and what we're going to hear here are uh, two compositions by 10-year-old students as part of this toy symphony project where we'd work with orchestras, with children with little to no music experience. Uh, and uh, through a series of workshops, a couple weeks later, uh, would end up producing, the students would end up producing these types of compositions. So here's uh, this piece of music from Hyperscore, and I'll just play a quick section of it. So here this other melody comes in. Philharmonic. So what I want to stress from these examples are these are compositions made by 10-year-old kids uh, who had little to no music experience after working <laughs> with this interface for on average about four or five weeks. Um, and it's a type of thing where it's a facilitative instrument, it's incredibly useful, 
to sort of allow an entirely other level of music discussion to take place very quickly. So, you know, we come in and we're talking about what makes an interesting piece of music. Uh, you know, how do you maintain interest over time? Uh, what type of form are you, are you going to uh, be interested in? And this is the type of stuff that usually you don't get at until years and years after of sort of working in exclusively the rules of Western harmony. Um, but in a hospital environment, this meant something entirely different. Uh, let's see. So here's video from Tewksbury. So here's a workshop format in a Department of Mental Health, and uh, there you'll also see some video from the Department of Physical Health interjected. Basically, we're working with individuals with diseases that are diverse as major schizophrenias, bipolar disorders, uh, cerebral palsy, Alzheimer's disease, spina bifida, in sort of a group and collaborative format. Uh, now, Tewksbury Hospital is the kind of place where um, it's a residential hospital. All the patients are living there. They don't have a lot of access to resources. Um, and basically, our role there uh, was not only to sort of create an intervention where people were expressing themselves and using this sort of facilitative composing environment, but the result was much broader than that. It was really a, cu a culture shift in the hospital. Eventually, patients from the physical health side were being supported by patients of the mental health side to sort of use each other's advantages over their disadvantages to create this music. Uh, we brought in doctors, occupational therapists, physical therapists to start looking at how patients, despite having massive physical disabilities, were motivated to overcome these fine motor and motor control issues to navigate the interface uh, and compose this music. What I'm going to show you here in this last clip um, is someone that I worked with very closely, Dan and Dan uh, has cerebral palsy, he's paralyzed from the, the neck down. And what he's doing here is playing his, his hyperscore composition for us for the first time. And we developed an interface, this IR, this infrared pointer, which you see uh, on his head, uh, where he was able to paint with hyperscore and compose these pieces of music where otherwise he can't speak. He, he, so for him, really what we're talking about is uh, a creativity prosthesis. This hyperscore, which he's worked with now for the past year and a half, has become <coughs> sort of a, a premier uh, communicative outlet for him. He, uh, he does composing workshops. He has jobs teaching in the community uh, uh, students how to use this interface um, and has become a spokesperson at the hospital for what people with these sorts of pro uh, really not good prognosis. You know, he's not going to improve in his motor function. It's a neurodegenerative disease. Uh, you know, what they can do, what it means to be a person in that type of condition and uh, you know, what it means to learn in that environment and what it means to express yourself creatively. Uh, but Hyperscore um, was not, um, it was created as part of this toy symphony project and I believe that these types of tools can be a lot smarter than sort of in a traditional music therapy context, you know, just providing an intervention that's facilitative that can bring about uh, sort of rely on the social aspect of music, the power of music, to bring about new modes of interaction, new sort of social interactions and empowerment. So what I actually envision is an era where these types of tools are more sophisticated to actually do the measurement and sensing of the clinical measures that are relevant to the patients that we're working with. So two areas that I'm working on in this idea is autism and Alzheimer's disease. And I think what we're talking about as far as the culture of research in autism I'll focus on autism, then make a quick note about Alzheimer's. 
Uh, you know, not since we're talking about a series of disabilities and social interaction, communication, repetitive behaviors. And what I have here is a timeline that's looking at uh, sort of the research going on, uh, the research that really defined this disease. Uh, and from the 1970s, looking at sort of the beginning of genetic implications with this primarily social disorder, all the way to where we are now, where MIT is contributing to major research uh, with an autism initiative that I really feel will uh, bring out the fundamentals of the genetics and uh, neurobiology of this pri primarily social disorder. But the question is, you know, what then? What's the application of that research? How, will these people li live better lives? Will they live better lives as part of the interventions that they undergo? And uh, can the tools in their environment, the social tools, the creative tools, their communicative tools, leverage what's being discovered in the sciences and actually drive their creative and expressive lives? And so the approach basically is to hit the cognitive and neuroscience literature to find domains where these individuals are actually sort of better than the general population. So we identify cognitive markers on that and then move into a development phase where we develop tools that measure for these cognitive markers uh, all while composing music. So what you're seeing here are sort of melodic and rhythmic games that are actually performing sort of neuropsychological and cognitive tests, but it's invisible to the user. So where in Tewksbury we have these types of interventions, we're showing that you can rely on the social aspect of music to create sort of very interesting advances over someone's disease. Now that same tool that's allowing that facilitation and composition is actually documenting how that person is developing or improving cognitively uh, and physically. Um, so basically, it's assessment inside of our creative and expressive tools. Um, and I guess for the sake of time, I'll just say that the emphasis in autism is definitely intervention, but we have similar goals uh, in Alzheimer's disease for developing and bringing to clinical trial softwares that are doing early uh, assessment and detection of the disease. So basically, in summary, I wanted to put up this slide, which uh, is a state-of-the-art technological neuropsychological test. This is the type of thing that's a good test. This is from this Cambridge uh, battery of cognitive tests for detection of Alzheimer's disease. Um, these types of things are bring, being brought to PDAs, to patient bedsides, and you know, are good at distinguishing Alzheimer's disease from other types of diseases. Uh, but when you think about what healthcare is going to be five years from now, 10 years from now, this isn't it. It's going to be relying on the pervasiveness of technologies in the homes, the social networking that's available to us that we know already. Uh, and I believe it's going to rely on our creative tools, what makes us human, uh, the things that we use, that everyone in the population used to uh, develop themselves, their idea of themselves. I no longer think of the healthcare sort of market as a marginalized population where the interventions and technologies implied for the diagnosis of that population are different. Uh, what I'm trying to show is the marriage of creative tools and new technologies uh, for that population to increase expression, just as any of us would uh, as artists. Great. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks, Adam. No, that was great. Um, there are a number of other, before I introduce the next, uh, the next speaker, uh, there are a number of other projects at the Media Lab that actually relate to uh, interventions and use of technology in this way for autism. Um, one that you might have uh, read is our social emotional prosthetic, which is derived from the notion of effective computing, which enables computers to understand people's emotions uh, and, and others in tangible media and so forth. I mean, I, I think this is a, a profound area that not only the Media Lab will 
will engage in, but a lot of others. You know, the U.S. or the world healthcare system is so focused on cures. We spent, you know, 90% of our, our money on cures, maybe 10% on rehab, and then almost 0% on how to improve people's quality of lives in the long run. I think there's a real opportunity uh, to change that equation. Now, that's also true of, uh, of not only, uh, you know, neurodegenerative diseases, but, um, but other uh, disabilities that occur. And I'm going to introduce Hartmut right now. Let's, uh, Ryan, do you want to go next? Or? Okay, Ryan's going to go next. So I was in the middle of a great transition, which Ryan just interrupted, but that's okay. We're nothing if not adaptable. Uh, I'm going to let the, Ryan Chen. Ryan uh, uh, is a graduate student, but sometimes I think he's more project manager or king uh, in many ways of the, uh, of the Smart Cities group. And uh, Ryan, why don't you take it away? Yeah, thanks. So, sorry for the interruption. We were trying to that's get okay. some I'll AV pick it up help. Later, yeah. yeah. Uh, so thanks. My name is Ryan Chin. I'm a PhD uh, candidate at the Media Lab in the Smart Cities group. Uh, the group is run by Professor Bill Mitchell. He's the former dean of the School of Architecture and now head of the Smart, Smart Cities Group. And the Smart Cities Group is primarily focused on how we can, uh, how, how design and technology can change the way uh, cities uh, might operate in the future and how we could uh, better live in them. And so that, that's really the context in which we operate and, and how, we, how we question the things that we do. Uh, the one area that we've been very much focused on is the question of mobility in urban contexts. And that's a big problem that a lot of people uh, face today. Uh, how do we get around in cities and how does that affect the way we design cities? So uh, the primary project that I'll talk about today is called the City Car Project, which is a collaboration between MIT Media Lab and General Motors. Uh, and this is a project that uh, many people have been working on. Uh, which I'll try to represent here today. So uh, this is a slide just showing you a kind of early concept of this uh, city car that we've been designing over the last uh, few years. This is a design from a couple, a year and a half ago, uh, and it gives you a kind of sense of the relationship between the automobile and the city. And what we're very interested in is looking at the connection between this uh, individual unit and the rest of the city uh, in terms of mass transportation. So this kind of relationship was very, very important for us to think about. Uh, one of the issues that we've been very much uh, looking at is, uh, and this, these are problems that everyone's looking at uh, both in school and in, in industry, is the question of urban density. You know, how do we control this? How do we maintain that? How do we, how do we make sure that densities are in the right level? Uh, pollution, the issues of global warming, the amount of uh, carbon emissions. Uh, you know, everyone must have seen the, the movie by Al Gore recently. Uh, these, are, these, are, these are very pertinent right now. Uh, and congestion, the lifelong you know, uh, problem of congestion just being a, a problem that we all face uh, today and in the past. Uh, interestingly, there are a number of phenomenon that are uh, sort of emerging that we can sort of take as, a, as an opportunity to look at. One is emerging connectivity. I think Frank talked about the fact that uh, the cell phone is now such a, a ubiquitous item. Uh, well, we can take the same assumption for the vehicle uh, and for the city itself. So the emergence of, of uh, cellular networks and the emergence of Wi-Fi networks and thinking about the car as a connected uh, element of the city uh, is a very important uh, assumption to make. Uh, the other aspect is that the reason why we live in cities is the resources of the city. Uh, resources include uh, the people. Uh, resources include uh, cultural institutions. Uh, resources include uh, parking, for example. That's a big resource that we also want to be able to, to access, and this is a big issue. Uh, so those resources are, are sort of the binding element for which this, the, the car should really connect us to. Uh, the last one is cities itself. Cities have infrastructure. Uh, a lot of cities are, are basically the same. Uh, if, you if you ask the question of 
what Washington, D.C. looked like 50 years ago. It basically looks like what it is today with a few improvements, obviously. So cities aren't going to change overnight. We want to design something that isn't disruptive, but, but certainly complementary to what, what already exists. So some facts to consider before I get into the actual uh, design of the car. Um, uh, interestingly, the growth of cities is a, is a big factor. Uh, many people, are, um, uh, much of the, the earth is moving towards uh, developing city centers. Uh, the urbanization is, uh, is, is a big uh, aspect to look at. Um, most of the, uh, the growth is going to be happening in cities. 60% uh, of the population will be there. Over 80% of the wealth of the, of, of, of the planet will be in cities. So that's something to consider. And therefore, the use of energy within these networks is, a, is an important consideration. Um, here, the second fact talks about transportation and building operations taking roughly about 60% of all the uh, energy resources that are available. That's a big, big number, and that's something that if we want to make some changes, uh, that would be the, the one, one number to, to focus on. This last number is actually very interesting. Starts looking at congested areas in Manhattan, uh, looking for a parking space. Uh, over 40% of the gasoline used at congested times in Manhattan is wasted just looking for a parking space. So this is what I call a gross misappropriation of priority. I mean, you know, how are we solving this problem? This is something that we all consider. Um, the other thing that happens in cities is... I, I think 50% of murders are yeah, also... That's right, that's right, that's right. Um, the, the other thing to consider is that where people live and where people work are not necessarily in the same place. The big urban trend now is to have mixed use. Uh, but a lot of cities don't have that sort of infrastructure and, and we're very much stuck into this sort of uh, 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 separation between the energy grid, transportation, where people live. So for us, the challenge was to look at reinventing urban personal transportation. We really saw, thought that, that that was an area to focus on. So this is a more recent design of the car, the city car. It's a two-passenger shared electric uh, vehicle that folds up. Uh, and the reason why it folds up is uh, that we want to save on, on footprint. Uh, and so the basic idea is really kind of like a shopping cart. So when you need a shopping cart, you take one out of the stack. And then when you're done, you put it in the back of another stack somewhere else. The vehicles charge when they're electric, electrically when they're in the stack themselves. Uh, some features about the car. Uh, we started to even look at the wheels, so we started looking at reinventing the wheel. Everyone says that we shouldn't do that, but we, we started to do, to do that, actually. This is, I think, part of the role of the Media Lab. Uh, so the wheels of the vehicle actually have in-wheel motors uh, placed at every wheel. So we have steering, we have suspension, we have all the mechanisms that drive and propel and navigate the vehicle inside each wheel. So each wheel becomes a kind of separate module, a kind of mobility module that you attach to the vehicle. This vehicle has what we call 360 degree, well, we have omnidirectional ability. This vehicle can spin on its own axis, the wheels can turn 90 degrees, and we can translate the car into, sideways into a parking space. This is something Detroit wouldn't consider because they don't have to parallel park there. Here we do, so this is something that we, we really wanted to build into the vehicle. Um, so the use case, when you need one, you take your credit card and you swipe it, and uh, therefore it identifies who you are. It, it, it per perhaps checks if you have a, a license uh, and have a financial record, and, th and then you can take the car. When you're done, you put it back to another car. What happens here is that the charging happens when it's in the stack, uh, and there's a couple ways to do that. One is inductively, the other is conductively, which is basically plugging it, plugging it in. What happens here is that recharging happens whenever it's in the stack, and therefore, by doing that, having stacks throughout the city in convenient locations reduces the amount of batteries you might need on the vehicle. Therefore, the range uh, can be extended because you have multiple stacks within the city. So 
Uh, I'll talk basically for the rest of the, of the talk on uh, the efficiencies that you get and, and how that affects the way we design the car. Uh, first of all, the car is very small. It's very, very, very tiny. When it folds up, it's actually only uh, half the length of a smart car, which is roughly about four feet. Um, and that we could achieve that by actually tilting up the, the cabin itself. Uh, the efficiency, you know, urban planners will talk a lot about this because now we start to change the way you might design the road. It might change the way you design a parking structure, for example. You might be able to reduce the amount of parking spaces and add more green into the city, perhaps. So these are things to think about. The electric vehicle allows the vehicle to be very silent very quiet and not polluting at the tailpipe. And that's something that's very important for us. We like to be able to use the vehicle uh, in order to promote renewable energy sources. And I will talk a little bit about that later. The biggest change is that the vehicle is not owned by anybody. It is a shared use. It's a community vehicle. So the big kind of shift there is to think of the car as not a product, but as a service, as a kind of service that provides mobility. And this is a big, big, big thing uh, that is very difficult for the auto industry to actually think about because they are in a commodity business. So uh, here's a video. Uh, this is a video that we did here. We shot this in the Stata Center. Uh, this is a video just showing how the vehicle operates as a basic concept. It does have doors. We took it off for the sake of the animation. Uh, and as you can see here, Will is one of our students. Uh, the car comes in. You could when it parks, the, the back of the, uh, of the vehicle folds up, so you, it takes very little space. You notice the color is also going to change as well. The next car comes in and plugs in behind it. Now you have a, a, in, a series charge uh, vehicle uh, inductively. Suzanne, who comes out of the vehicle, now parks the car. Uh, you notice the color changes. Uh, the reason why we're interested in that is we want to be able to personalize every car to each person. So the, the green, perhaps, is our favorite color, but that's a maybe a trivial thing. The more important thing is we want to be able to configure the car <coughs> to each person, meaning ergonomics, meaning driving characteristics, meaning uh, your uh, location of your friends within the city. You know, so start, start thinking about social networks. Here you can see Suzanne, who comes back. She takes the first car, which is a different car that she took uh, coming into the spot, and then she will uh, 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 swipe her credit card. That she gets into the vehicle, and then off she goes. She moves the stack forward one so that, the, so that the, the second car is now the first car in the queue, uh, and then you're ready to go. Uh, here, we, we uh, just showing you how we filmed the whole thing. Some people thought that the car was a real thing, so we had to make sure that, that, uh, that, they, that they knew it was animation. Um, so how does this affect the city? Uh, so one thing that happens is that if you have electric vehicles and you're placing a lot of electric vehicles into, into the city, you have a lot of battery capacity. And, if you're, and it could be a mixture of batteries or, or supercapacitors, but if we're choosing to move down that path, we're putting a lot of store energy storage into the grid, which means that uh, the city could utilize this at, at, at different times of the day. So one thing that we could imagine is placing solar collectors on top of buildings that are very close to the stacks, therefore reducing the transmission losses between the source and the sink, this being the car. The electric car allows us to actually give power back to the grid, therefore we could store it and charge at the, right, uh, at the appropriate time. So one example would be at solar noon, at the, at the, at the height of the, uh, of the day in the mid-afternoon, that's a great time to be charging your vehicle. But that's not the time that people will be using their cars. They'll be using them a few hours later. At nighttime, you might want to charge the vehicles because the cost of electricity is lower. So you can imagine that the car has a dual purpose. It is not only providing mobility, but it also is part of a greater energy system for the city. And the city becomes sort of a virtual power plant to the whole thing. And I'll talk more about that later. 
Uh, the interior, we started to think more about the car not as a traditional car with a steering wheel because we have all this omnidirectional uh, driving capability, but more as a, as, a, as a computer on wheels. You know, the car should have access to all the things that you would have on your desktop. Of course, we have to consider the distraction, but uh, the car is kind of a concierge of the city, getting you to where you need to go. So start thinking of a map-based system for the, inter for the interface of the car. You don't necessarily care how fast you're going, but you do care, do care about where the parking spaces might be, or where your friends are, or how do you navigate through an unfamiliar part of the city. So you want to think of the car more like that. For very quickly, this is what the car, uh, the, uh, the current design looks like. This is the basic uh, folding chassis. Uh, this is an exoskeleton shell. And then this is what the exterior looks like. We started, uh, it's part of our, our job at the lab to build things, so we started building prototypes of this. This is a prototype built by one of the students. Uh, and this is a half-scale prototype of the we, what we call the wheel robot. It has all the, the drive mechanisms in, inside it. And this is a sort of testing platform. We, this, this will work, it will operate, and our goal is to move from this half-scale prototype to a full-scale prototype within this year. This is what the folding chassis looks like, and that's what it looks like when it's unfolded. So you might ask the question, well, why do you want to fold the car? There is a lot of complexity to that, and that might be a sort of a gimmick. Uh, but uh, we did do some urban studies on this, and this is a typical Manhattan block, uh, which is, uh, fits about 82 cars, theoretically. Uh, that's if you take away uh, fire hydrants and loading zones, you'd get 82 regular cars. Uh, with the city car, we did a rough estimate, you could fit 500 and 504 cars in the same block. Uh, and that's because the car is small, you're stacking them, and you're, and you're also folding them up. So that kind of ratio, which is six to one on-street parking, has dramatic implications on the urban design of any city uh, in the future. Uh, we asked the question of parking structures. Parking structures are, 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 are actually quite wasteful. This particular one is a 90-degree parking structure. Uh, you notice that most of the space in the parking structure is dedicated not to the storage of cars, but uh, to the aisle, because you need to get a particular car out. Well, uh, the one on the right just talks about how uh, that, sp that space is now dramatically reduced because you have a community vehicle. And this start really changes the way you might design buildings as well. And the last series of slides talks about the urban implications. Uh, this is New York City. Uh, the dots, the black dots represent subway stations. And this is, I mean, most people know about this, but as you go further out in the city, you have less access to, to uh, public transportation systems. So, where this plays, where the car plays a big role is how does this affect the, the sort of periphery of the city. Um, the next slide starts to speculate on where the placement of these cars would be. You know, should they be at every, every uh, subway stop? Should they be at other locations throughout the city? If you give, uh, if you put stacks of cars at the very last stop of every, uh, every uh, line, take Elwife Station here in Boston, for example, uh, and put a 10-mile radius, this is the kind of coverage that you'll get of, of, of greater New York. Um, and I'll get back to that in a second. Uh, the other big issue in cities is uh, going to the center and back out. This is, this is a big problem that happens in New York. If you wanted to go from one part of Brooklyn to another, often if you want to take the uh, uh, subway, you have to go back into the city and back out again. So you have this sort of virtual ring that you can't transverse. Uh, in this case, you have to cross the East River two times uh, to, to stay on the same side of the river. So, with this, and this happens in many cities, uh, placing a city car there starts to eliminate this sort of, uh, sort of problem. Uh, this is a slide from uh, the New York Times, just talks about who drives in Manhattan. Uh, the, the darker areas represent where the car drivers are. You notice that they're all on the periphery, except for that little anomaly on the Upper East Side. That's for all the rich people that can afford a car <laughs> up in, 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 in Manhattan. But 
by, place, by, by overlaying this diagram with the one I just showed two, two slides ago, you start to, th to see where the reduction of personal cars comes into play. We asked the question, well, how does this fit in other cities? Think of a multi-center city like Los Angeles, uh, where you know, no one thinks that public transportation could ever work. Well, one thing that we could speculate on is a neighborhood car, a car that doesn't go from uh, Malibu to, uh, to Orange County, but that stays in that, that particular neighborhood and that we start promoting uh, bus rapid transit, for, perhaps. By doing that, you're connecting the car, using the car as a kind of last mile connector between uh, major nodes that subways and other uh, mass transit systems serve very well, but you don't live at the node. You don't live at South Station. You don't live at, uh, at Grand Central Station. You live somewhere else, you know, close to that node. So start to, start to think about connecting that. That red line there actually represents the entire transit authority for LA, and the subway only goes from Hollywood to LA. So you see geographically the sort of disparity of, 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 of connectivity. Uh, second to last slide, uh, congestion pricing zone in London. Most people are familiar with this. It just it got expanded, uh, I think, a few days ago, uh, westward. And when, when you cross over to this congestion pricing zone, you obviously have to pay more. We speculated on placing vehicles, uh, stacks of vehicles, at the tube stations and giving it a five-minute walking distance. And the red, the, red, uh, the red circle represents just five-minute walking. So by placing them throughout the congestion pricing zone, you can get pretty much full coverage of, of the whole zone uh, within five to 10 minutes of walking. Uh, this slide, uh, MIT has a cogen plant, uh, and so we started speculating on how this would work on MIT's campus. And if you combine, and we started doing some early calculations, uh, we can get a rough, roughly uh, almost a 100% uh, benefit, not 100%, but 50% reduction uh, in the energy used per day per person commuting by combining both electric vehicles that stack in the way that we've suggested with renewables and the cogeneration. Last slide. Um, in the end, the car is a kind of dual-use product. When it's moving, it's providing mobility to the citizens of the city. Uh, when it's stationary, it's being charged, it's also providing energy storage. Therefore, you can start thinking about a greater collaboration between the citizens of the city and those that sort of run it. Um, this is the last slide. This is just the, the credit slide. These are the students, the, the many students and, and faculty that have been working on the project. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Ryan. That was great. I mean, from these uh, speakers, you can conclude some uh, recent uh, trends at the Media Lab. One is that the, uh, we're living in an era where the students are both better dressers and more articulate than the director. Uh, that's one thing I've observed. The other uh, is um, I would like to point out that um, just about everything you've seen or will be seeing uh, was built largely in the Media Lab. And this is something I didn't understand when I first came. Uh, but when students come to the Media Lab, they're taught to build anything, and there's a magnificent set of facilities uh, in the lower level of the basement that enables them to build everything from uh, prosthetic devices to, uh, to robot-wheeled vehicles, uh, on and on and on. I think that, uh, you know, that's one of the major distinguishing characteristics of the lab. But let's get on to our last speak speaker right now. Hartmut, uh, not a student, um, but sort of a postdoc, I guess, or a staff member at the Media Lab. I'll let you introduce yourself. Uh, but this, I think you'll find uh, a magnificent project and uh, we'll really push the question of what does media mean? I think you'll see how far we've moved uh, into new directions. Okay. Well, thank you very much for the introduction. My name is Hartmut Geyer, and I'm a visiting postdoc at the Biomechatronics Group. 
But rather than speaking of my project at this group, I would like to give you an overview of what we are trying to achieve within this group. And the uh, biomechatronics group uh, bases its research on two things. And the first is biomechanical modeling. So understanding fundamental principles of legged systems or how we function. And the second part is to apply this fundamental understanding to augmentation and prosthetic devices. For instance, um, leg pr knee prosthesis or ankle prosthesis. And I will start, I cannot speak about all the projects we are pursuing, but I will pick out four examples. And I will start with the uh, Rio knee prosthesis, which is, I think, one of our oldest projects. And what you can see here, it is the commercialized version by a prosthetics company called Ösor. And it's basically, if you explode it and look into the exploded view, it is a knee prosthesis whose major function is to dampen the uh, knee while it's in stance and to let it move freely forwards while it is in swing. And how, you, how we achieve this is with using magnetological fluids and it works in a way that you apply electrical uh, currents and have small iron particles. The currents produce a magnetic field. The iron particles form a chain and you have this, this chain running between discs that break the system and dampen the leg. So what you see here is a passive system and if you move this, ah, and I just want to show you a video of a subject veering this prosthesis uh, when it was still at uh, MIT before it got commercialized. And what you can see implemented in the uh, control how this current is applied is also some biomechanical knowledge about how we change our gates and how much force or how much braking force our legs need during stance at different speeds in walking. But what I showed you there was just a, basically a passive system. It has only damping. And if you move on to the next step, you can see that we also develop active leg prosthesis. And this is the second project I want you to point on. And this is an ankle prosthesis having a motor. And here in this picture, you see it a little bit better. So it's an ankle joint driven by a motor attached to a commercial flex foot prosthesis. And for now, I just show you how the head of the lab, Professor Herr, is veering this active prosthesis and it helps him to move upstairs. And the short story is that most of our energy that we need to put in while we locomote needs to be put in at the angle joints, especially when we want to walk upstairs. Well, how does this 
This is basic mechanical or electromechanical um, research and engineering. How does it connect to uh, uh, the human? Well, in this case, you again see the head of the lab and one of the PhD students um, who was pr primarily developing this active angle joint. And what you see here is that the student is moving his leg and his feet, especially. And uh, Professor Herr tries to move his non-existing uh, phantom limb in the same way as the student does. And what you see here on this slide, what we are, what we are using, we are recording the muscle activities that the amputee still has and try to match these activities that are excited by his imagined movement of his limbs to the actual limb movement. And you can see, maybe barely see it, the actual movement is in red. And after some neural network processing, the blue curve tracks this red movement. And the source of this neural network is, in fact, the electrode signals that were taken from the residual limb of the amputee. So now you can imagine how this connects to the human and what he can do with this. With this, you see in this video, it is one thing to move upstairs with prosthesis. What you need is energy. It is another thing to go downstairs. Usually, we move our leg, our foot, to tilt it downward. And what you see in this video is that he goes up and down. And while he's going down, before he's getting to the next step, he is tilting the prosthesis um, by his muscular activity. In a similar fashion as you have seen before in the video that I, uh, in the uh, di diagram that I showed you. Well, and one future direction that this research might lead to is a kind of human-machine connection where you actually implant electrodes into nerve fibers and use these uh, nerve, you record these nerve signals and use it to control prosthesis. Or on the other way, you can send signals from the prosthesis to the sensory nerve fibers so that maybe as a uh, amputee wearing this, you can feel what you are stepping on. Maybe it's sand, maybe it's concrete. And you might get a response and feel what you are stepping on. Okay. Well, all these uh, technical developments that I showed you are to some extent based on biomechanical and motor control um, research that informs our technical devices. And what we are looking on in particular is the mechanics of balance control, some muscle reflex control, which, for instance, for this ankle prosthesis, we might use if we understand how the ankle 
is controlled with muscle reflexes in humans, we might be able to apply this to anchor prosthesis. And in another project, we can test control ideas that we develop on actual muscle physiological test environments with real muscle tissue that can be stimulated and using sensors, we get also some feedback response. And just as one example, and this is my second last slide indeed, I would like to show you one of the neuromechanical models that we developed. And what you can see here is a model that represents a human with similar mass distributions. And each leg is activated by eight muscles. And all these muscles are controlled just by local reflex loops. And what this means is you may be able, just by local uh, control loops in an ankle prosthesis, to let it behave like, in, like it behaves in this model. That is, you might be able to walk upstairs, downstairs, without really putting in too much control, pretty much an emergent behavior. All right, and this is um, the slide showing all the people in the group. It is a huge effort. We have engineers building systems. We have biomechanists or physicists uh, finding fundamental control principles. And we have many students um, and also technicians taking part in this whole enterprise. And with that, I thank you very much for your attention. Thank you very much. <laughs> thank you. So I think, I mean, seeing those demos, we have a much better sense of what you mean by inventing a better future at MIT. Well, I, it's, uh, it's a really exciting time. I mean, I think we're entering an era right now where in the not too distant future, we're going to really change our most fundamental notions of human abilities and disabilities and see a much broader impact of technology on people and on humanity. And uh, it's just exciting to be associated with that, uh, with that enterprise. Well, with, with that in mind, I'd like to open up the floor to questions. We would ask if you could make your way to the mic because this is being recorded by a variety of media for web transmission, and we want to make sure that your voices are heard. Those of us in the room could probably hear you speak loudly, but uh, the, the other media may not capture it. So if you have questions, please walk to the mic and identify yourself and uh, join the conversation. Well, David always brags that the questions are the best part of a communication forum, that our audiences are so intelligent um, uh, that they ask really smart things. So don't let me down on just because David's out of town. Uh, I'm Chester Fernandez. I'm from the Systems Design and Management Program from the ESD department. Uh, my question is, how do you power that laptop in a village? I'm sorry, could you repeat that? Uh, how, how would you recharge the battery on that laptop in a village environment? Well, um, that's been one of the major uh, uh, focal areas of research, focus areas of research. Um, it originally started off with the idea of a hand crank uh, that, could be, that could be used, and that was a, a concept. 
Um, well, first of all, um, you know, I think one of the things that they found is that uh, in not all cases are you without power. And so what you want to do is optimize the power that you have. And I think that's why so much focus was given to optimizing power and lengthening the life of the battery. But a number of different uh, uh, proposals are being put forward and, and explored right now, one of which is coming out of Hughes Group right now, which is looking at a hand-powered kind of pull uh, because it maximizes the biomechanics and the uh, opportunity to use your power in your upper body. So they're looking at that, they're looking at foot power. So I don't think there's a final answer, but a number of different uh, proposals uh, being prototyped right now for, for human power. So, Kestrel. Hi, um, I'm Kestrel. I'm a relatively recent graduate of CMS, and my um, work is actually in disability and technology. I was really um, enamored with your sort of upsetting that whole disability and technology triangle of uh, cure, rehabilitation, and actually improving the quality of life and for people with disabilities. And I'm intrigued by your involvement of various people with disabilities in Media Lab projects. Could you explain a little bit more about how you get people with disabilities from the community involved in these projects? Well, um, I, you know, I think there are, that's a good question. I mean, there are a number of different vehicles for that. You know, I might even, uh, you know, push that question over to Adam because he's been doing that. Maybe, Adam, if you want to um, comment on that a bit and what you've been doing with your group. I, I think something that's... Oh. Are we going to... Can you get a Thanks. <laughs> Sorry to let the mechanics of this dictate, but it is going to be helpful later. Yes. This is something that's had to change, uh, and it's had to change very quickly about the lab. So groups are, I mean, there's no real immediate infrastructure within the lab to, you know, rely on a subject population that's consistent, that, uh, that exhibits many and a diver and diverse set of disabilities based on uh, the types of things that we're trying to tackle as problems. Uh, so what's happening in my group and other groups, certainly Ross Picard's group and, and uh, quite a few groups at the lab, uh, is that we're, we're trying to form collaborations at MIT uh, with, in scientific departments that have connections to patient populations, but also I think one of the benefits of being in the Cambridge environment is that there's such a wealth and network of interested people in academic and also non-academic uh, healthcare centers. So we've been working with uh, not just teaching hospitals, Harvard Medical School, HST types of things, but really also looking at uh, state hospitals, Tewksbury Hospitals, a state hospital, um, and just working with practitioners and also families. So I know a lot of the students that have projects in this area are constantly out giving talks to uh, caregiver support groups, to parent groups. Uh, in addition to finding academics to work with us and collaborate directly on the research itself. And, and as I go out and talk about this new direction for the Media Lab, I get incredible interest in a number of emails from uh, patient groups, support groups, research groups from around the country and around the world who want to work with us. So uh, the demand is there uh, and, and the opportunities are now there where they weren't in the past. And, and we're really reaching out to, uh, to, to, to test these technologies at scale in real world environments. It's the only way to understand them and to measure them. Thank you. Okay, over here. Yeah, I had a question about the city car. It was two questions actually. One, um, how does it deal with crashing? So it's, it's a pretty small vehicle. 
how's it going to deal with like a Cadillac Escalade that just rams into it? Um, and the second is, um, how does it actually, how do people actually park into it and behind? Because I, I would imagine people aren't really all that good at it. So is there, are there like tracks on the ground? So just figuring how that might actually work. Yeah, yeah if you can go to one of the microphones, it'd be helpful. Okay. I'll start with the second one on parking. Uh, we theorize that there's a couple ways to do it. One is uh, that when you come to the stack, to the back, there would be a zone <laughs> that you'd park to, and then you'd just get out, and the car would do the rest. Because we have digitally controlled wheels, each wheel is, is controlled independently, uh, both to drive the car and to also stack up the car. So to stack up the car, you lock up the front two wheels, and you drive the back, and it basically lifts the car up. Uh, so that would be probably one way to do it. We figured that if we made the stack as simple as possible, that you wouldn't have to do anything. You just drop the car off at the back, and then you would leave. Uh, so we would align that uh, you know, wirelessly, perhaps. On the crash question, uh, interestingly, if you look at the vehicle architecture, uh, the car is very small. And the challenge, of course, is that not making it, I mean, the challenge is not to make uh, a, a car safe at that level. It's about perceived safety. You can make a very safe uh, uh, safety cell for the vehicle, especially when you have very small structures, like uh, very, very small volume. The vehicle architecture places uh, drive motors in each of the wheels at the corner, so you have protection at the corner. You don't have an engine block in the, s in the front, just like a traditional car, which would take up a lot of space. Therefore, we can use that space that was where the engine w uh, was formerly at uh, and provide a much more safer crash structure because now we can utilize that space by using other materials as well. So the greater question about perceived safety, that's another issue which can be designed, uh, can be addressed by the actual physical design of the car. Uh, there was a hiccup recently uh, where a lot of people started to buy uh, hybrids, uh, so you started to reduce the amount of uh, SUVs out there. I think that there is also a question of whether in congestion price zone uh, places like <coughs> London, perhaps there should not be any other vehicles and that this would live by itself in its own sort of zone. So I think these are very open uh, and they are very context specific, depending on where you are in the world. Thank you, Ryan. Okay. So I'm, I'm intrigued by the, the functionality and the design of the electric vehicle. And I guess my question is, you've designed a vehicle for high-density areas, for kind of sizes as small as is the, is the best way. What about kind of larger, sprawling cities where larger vehicles that kind of serve as a room, <coughs> kind of a mobile environment, so you look at the Houstons, the Phoenix, those cities of the right. world, where you pull up to a Starbucks, there's five times as much retail space in the parking lot than in the <coughs> store itself, right. and and what you envision in terms of the car becoming a you know a multifunctional place right. for individuals and how that you know fits into right. your group's work. All right, we it was it was philosophical really. Uh, we decided not to do a multi-purpose vehicle. Uh, we wanted to address some of the major issues that were very concerning to us, which was basically ur dense urban areas. We weren't so focused on particular cities. We knew that the East Coast and the West Coast and parts of Europe and parts of very dense areas of Asia would be the most impactful places to look at. The question of uh, the suburban version of this car did come up, though, because if you take a subway station, it's very good at conveying uh, a high density amount of people from one stack to the next, from one station to the next. The question is, how do you get home? You know, on one side to the next. So, 
There could be a suburban version of this car, which, a complete, which might be a completely different business case, where you take this car, you bring it home, and you leave it at night. And then when you come back to, uh, say, uh, the commuter rail, you leave it there, and then it's available for someone else. So, of course, this is a big logistics thing. I don't think we were trying to tackle the you know, one-size-fits-all car. I think that there's plenty of solutions for that. I think eventually we're going to be moving towards denser concentrations anywhere, just looking at how the global trends are. So I, uh, if you look at the amount of vehicles that are available out there, there are thousands of vehicles available out there. I think this one is addressing a particular need. Uh, and if you, in the case of the city car, if you wanted to take that long trip, you would either rent a car uh, or, or have a personal car that you would use. So I don't think personal cars will go away. I think that this is a new vehicle type. It's not a taxi cab. It's not your personal car. It's not uh, a sports car. It's, it's a function that fits. It's a, serving a function that fits in the city. Uh, in America, a lot of people own three, four, five, six, you know, ten cars. Perhaps a family that has five cars can go down to four now. Uh, and use this one car uh, when they're in the city. So you start thinking about uh, use cases, and that's, that's really what we tried to address. Okay, over here, and then we'll go. Hi, my name is Eitan Gleiner, and I'm a new grad student with the teacher education program. And my question is for Adam, actually, on the, uh, on the music creation software that you were showing before. Um, specifically, you had one slide where you had two bars and, and uh, I guess, lots of uh, drawings with different colors on it. And um, I guess the program must take those drawings and interpret them and translate them into music, right? Right. So I'm kind of interested in um, how the program does that. Is it kind of like other music creation software out there, or, or does it deal with the colors and stuff as well? And furthermore, if it's being used for um, younger kids, how does it deal with noise? when the kid kind of draws something, but it's not exactly what they were going for. Mm -hmm. Right. So um, firstly, if anybody's interested in, in the software, I recommend you check out uh, HarmonyLine.com. The, the program's called HyperScore, and there are demo videos and all those sorts of things uh, there. Um, and it's also the type of project where it's a successful project that's come out of the Media Lab. Uh, the student who created it graduated, and now that's being further developed. And uh, they're really aggressively looking at exactly how it's being used in education settings and uh, the types of interaction uh, that's most useful that you want to support if you're de developing it in communities or really marketing it for communities and these sorts of things. But to quickly answer your question, um, Basically, what you see is what you get as far as notes and then painting into this score. So there are two formats. There are sort of two palettes in which you work. One, you're laying out note material, uh, and the pitch height is the uh, and the height in the window is the the pitch value that you're going to get. And then you assign that group of notes a color. And then when you paint a color uh, into your window, the only sort of translation that's taking place is that if you draw a curved line. Uh, like like a you know like an arc or a line going up, it then remaps your melody to the direction of that line. Uh, as far as how, and so basically your stacks of notes are getting mapped to the lines that you're drawing. Uh, and since that would create sort of an inharmonic mess, uh, what the software does is helps organize the harmony. Uh, and there's quite a lot of nuance into how it does that. But what we rely on with kids is just play. You know, they get into this interface and they're drawing, and you can quickly draw and redraw. And really, what we do when we're mentoring is sort of a hands off model. We just encourage kids to play, to try out different things, and to ask, them critical, to ask themselves critical questions like, Do you like what you hear? You know, is this interesting to you? Is this what you want to accomplish? Uh, and that dialogue, when you think about maybe 
your sort of piano lessons with the woman with the blue hair and the beads and with the ruler on your wrists and all these sorts of things uh, is very different. But uh, yeah, it's, it's an encouraging sort of interaction, I think. Thanks. All right, over here. My name is Cabell Gathman. I'm a PhD student in sociology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, but I'm a visiting student in CMS this semester. Um, my question is actually also about the cars. Uh, I was wondering if you have, it sounds like in your description of it that you're talking about these as being something that would be used by people who do have personal cars um, the way cars are now. Certainly you're talking about people who have credit cards. Uh, I'm wondering if you've thought at all about the social meaning of the car, um, because certainly in Los Angeles, it is the case that the public transit is very bad, but it's also the case that there is a social stigma attached to using the public transit that is hard to disentangle from how bad the public transit is now. And it seems to me that you might actually have an adoption problem convincing people to use these cars, not just because they may perceive them to be unsafe, as was also raised, but just because of the sort of meaning of your own car versus these cars. I wondered if you thought about that. We, we, we did think a lot about uh, the, the issue of uh, personal ownership and how people feel connected uh, to their vehicles. Um, I think that there's a developing idea behind that, which is uh, when you have a, a shared experience, like a shared car, we're not, we're not pushing for socialism necessarily. I think we're, we're pushing for uh, how technology can mediate personalization. And personalization, not as a as a physical thing, as in here's a physical car. It's my you know, this is my particular space, and no one else can use it. Uh, what I mean by that is by replacing uh, as much hardware out of the system and replacing it with software, we can start to personalize the things that you actually care about that are not physical, like uh, your favorite radio station, the the ergonomic position of, of the seating, all those things. Uh, there are also a number of technologies coming out of the lab and other places. Uh, that talk about displays. You know, so start thinking about the changing of the colors of, of the vehicle as well. I think that's a big, big thing. I don't think we're going to get people out of their cars, especially the people that love their cars in LA. Um, they're just going to be stuck in the jam the whole time, which is fine. You know, that's, 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 uh, that's, the, that's the mentality that they have, and that's, that's, that's the part of the culture. Um, car sharing is actually quite an old idea. It's been around since the 50s. It came out of Zurich. It's moved into Germany now in the, in the United States and throughout the world. I think that the greater trade-off here is are you providing mobility and are you providing flexibility? A lot of people in the city uh, don't own a car because they just don't, can't afford it or insurance is too much or parking is impossible. I think that this vehicle is uh, available to anybody. And in fact, we had some discussions about how this would play in developing nations as well. Can we start to democratize mobility is, is the big question here. And a lot of people, in, uh, 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 we take South America for example, a lot of folks in, 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 that, in that area of the world do, do not have access to mobility at all. They have to take a bus, you know, three hours one way. And so if we're providing mobility to them in some way, we're reducing their time of travel, therefore uh, 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 basically in, enhancing their lives. There is a correlation between uh, your economic status and your, and, and your uh, mobility, and I think they're closely tied. So democratizing that becomes a, a big thing. There are lots of challenges, of course. So yeah, we did think a lot about that. Just one little thing then. When you say customization, so are you thinking user profiles that would actually remember information for repeat users? No, I think that the, that the, the big privacy issue uh, is, is, is a big one. I think we want to protect the privacy of the, of the users. Uh, the 
uh, we want to be able to personalize, of course, for each person that comes in. We want to reduce the, the need to actually physically change anything. We want to have the right security measures for this, of course. One question that did come up for the car is that we want to track where the car is moving because we need to know where the cars are going. The reason why that's the case is because when you have a one-way travel, one-way shared system, all the cars might end up in the wrong places and therefore you need to bring them back and therefore the car needs to have GPS in it. So if you're willing to trade a little bit of privacy in terms of getting, uh, knowing where the vehicle is, you might get a lot of gain in terms of access to an available vehicle. So these are, these are games of trade-offs and a lot of people don't realize how much privacy they actually don't have anyway. Uh, so that, that's, that, that's, 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 that's part, of the, part of the system. Thank okay. you. Over here. Hi. Um, I guess uh, the title of Smart Cities kind of intrigued me and uh, I'm a reporter for small newspapers in Boston and I was wondering if the Media Lab is doing anything with civic engagement, uh, media communications. <laughs> that's your stuff. Uh, yes, we don't have it represented here, but you know, looking at uh, uh, you know, at patterns, uh, we have uh, Chris Chicksmahai, uh, one of our professors, is looking at the impact of media in kind of the cultural environments in terms of expression in many different, you know, many different contexts. So uh, in the more traditional, uh, uh, the more traditional interpretation of media and culture and so forth is something that's probably not as pervasive as the, at the Media Lab as it was, but still exists. Mm -hmm. Thanks. And still, we, we tend to attract students who are interested in those issues, and uh, we find that it gives a fine edge, I think, to a lot of the things that we do. Okay, over here. Yes, my name is Mary Nykorek. I'm a media specialist, and I work with a, there's more than between 70 and 100 user groups. They're called special interest groups. Across the board, high-end newbies, any subject just about you could name. Um, in the whole metro area, a lot of which meet in the major uh, Boston and Cambridge area. Um, the car, I per have a personal interest in cars. I was born and raised in Detroit, Motown, Michigan. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that's like the big three were giants that were not keeping up with what the user needed. And um, the Japanese uh, were going out and asking, you know, including half the population who buys their cars, that's the women. So, for example, one thing that, um, a comment that was ignored uh, was a space for what you need to carry and actually hide when it's parked. So it could be called a, uh, a place under the seat or in the middle that actually is covered, not going all the way back to the trunk, but you're carrying something that you, you don't want to have your purse or your something that looks like a purse and it's really just groceries or something like that. Um, or your uh, laptop or your personal items. So to allow the design to have a drawer that you can take the drawer out and put it into a rented vehicle, for example, um, and still have access to it. Um, so that's the question of storage is not just about a small drawer either. It's about the fact that routine use of a vehicle includes carrying things. When you have children, that happens to be things like strollers. When you want to uh, help um, the trans, transportation uh, puzzle, you want to carry your bike. Uh, when you have a presentation to give, you have a portfolio or a suitcase um, and or a backpack. And I don't see in these drawings the possibility at this point of much, quote, storage room that is routine use, not weird use. So this is one of the, the sort of uh, questions that is uh, a partial solution. Uh, what in the beginning version can be a hook 
to allow for a trailer, a mini trailer. So you could still have your car stacked up, but have your, basically it would be a lockable little trailer. Any possible? Oh, Ryan has an answer to that question. Sure. Yeah, so why don't you speak to this question of storage? So there's, I guess there's two questions. Uh, yeah, the the, the uh, uh, trailer idea is actually doable. Uh, there's this idea called, and it's been around for a while, virtual towing. Uh, so being able to tow one car by tying the control system of one to the next. Uh, a lot of people in the artificial intelligence world have been looking at this already. Uh, when you have a digitally controlled wheel and you're controlling all four wheels in one vehicle, you can imagine that one driver could be in one vehicle and pass by another vehicle that's parked on the side of the road uh, and then that, that vehicle activate and follow it uh, wirelessly. Uh, and I, I think that's a very feasible thing. Um, we did think a lot about that, and we're, we're working on this. We have a live demo. That if you ever want to come to the lab, we'll show it to you. Um, and that's really there for vehicle <coughs> fleet management. But now you could imagine, perhaps, if you have a family of more than two, that you can have just one driver have three cars follow behind. Uh, so this is really a, a real possibility. I think some of the logistics and all the legal issues might get in the way, uh, but technologically, it's not, it's, that's not the problem. I think that, uh, that it's really ab about implementation. Uh, on the storage issue, uh, we thought a lot about that. And the reason why these renderings don't have them beca is because we didn't put, in, put them in there. But we did consider storage. In a vehicle like this, uh, typically what you would need is an amount of space to go shopping. So if you wanted to go shopping, you would need to have grocery shopping, you would need to have probably eight bags of storage somewhere in the vehicle. Uh, if you wanted to take an airplane, uh, you would need to have enough room for two, two carry-ons plus two big, large suitcases. So these are some of the parameters that we've been uh, very much uh, concerned with and we're going to be implementing into the car. Um, the idea of keeping stuff in your car, I think it's an old idea, actually. Uh, I think you want to, especially if you're in the mode of, of using a community vehicle, because if the vehicle is available all the time, why would you have to carry stuff with you, all, you know, everywhere you go? I think that there is a, a need, especially for folks that live in the city, to reduce the amount of things that you're carrying around, especially for environmental reasons. I had in my car uh, a, a, a box of just junk that I drove around for a year. And I realized I, I don't need to carry this stuff because none of it is useful. Um, so my, my gasoline uh, usage actually uh, uh, reduced because I took that thing out. Uh, so you could make an argument that perhaps you don't want to carry so much stuff around. I understand that a lot of people do need strollers and all those type of things that you want to carry around with you. That we want to accommodate into the car as well. Okay. Next question. Here, go ahead. Hi, I'm Renee O'Leary. I'm, I'm a professor at Teachers College Columbia and I'm visiting at Harvard this spring. Um, as an educator and as someone interested in creativity, I'm really interested in the extension of the music project, um, especially when you're working with people with severe mental illness. And what happens after you begin this process? Have you found or have you been able to look over time at whether depression is alleviated or you know, what, what are some of the possibilities that go beyond the particular? Uh, do you have any longitudinal data? Right. Or? So uh, I, th I think the possibilities are one of, is probably the possibility for culture change in a large scale deployment of, you know, really creative technologies in a place like a state hospital is probably one of the most interesting avenues for follow up research that we're pursuing right now. So it's about a year and a half later since we used. Uh, 
this hyperscore sort of collaboration format at Tewksbury State Hospital. Uh, now hyperscore sessions get prescribed and documented in patient charts by uh, the primary physicians. Um, it was written in as a intervention partly responsible for discharge of most of the patients that we worked with in the, uh, in the mental health department as they moved into the next stages of their, uh, of their treatment away from a residential and long-term uh, chronic care facility. Um, there are now hyperscore groups that are self, completely self-sufficient as the patients are mentors to one another. Um, and then also I think at the hospital, one thing that doesn't appear in the video is just the change. And not the change in patients as far as functional abilities and uh, on markers uh, related to depression and these types of things, but really the change in everybody involved with the project, the practitioners, uh, the patients socially, the patients and how they related to their community, uh, how they wanted to uh, fulfill roles of leadership and mentorship to uh, to patients that have completely different sets of cognitive and physical disabilities than they would even identify with. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that this is definitely something that is not uh, totally uncommon to music and the use of music in these types of settings. But what is different is the fact that we're using a technology to mediate that type of change. And the opportunity then is that since we're working in this, this world of sort of sophistication and interaction and data that's technologically mediated, you know, then can we capture that data and start assigning the parts of the interaction and the parts of technology that are responsible for those types of cultural changes and changes related to uh, disease and intervention markers. Uh, so that is something that we're looking at now in a new collaboration with Tewksbury as we follow up with some case studies um, and developing sort of the next phase of technologies for uh, their patient population. And just to give you a taste of what that is, um, so we have this composing and facilitative tool, but now we're trying to put patients in the roles of sort of virtuosic and expert uh, performers. The idea is you've composed this material, now can you express it in real time like a violinist would express their melodic line. So that will have new implications uh, for, for use and also the type of data we can get from it. But the answer is yes, those things are happening. I think they're very interesting. Yes, thank you. Okay, one last question here. Uh, first of all, I, I just think this is tremendously exciting stuff. This is really great things that are going on here. My question has to do with uh, resistance, um, particularly in the case of the car, and you mentioned in the case of the computer, um, having a nonprofit to not compete with whatever. Um, what kind of resistance do you encounter or expect to encounter from, let's say in the case of the car, from auto companies, from cities who don't want to change the way parking is arranged, from parking lot operators, from God knows who, um, as you move into these things. I don't know if you're at the stage where you are considering that, but I'm curious uh, whether you're trying to deal with that sort of issue and what it, what it seems to look like at this point. Yeah, well, I'm going to answer that quickly, and maybe if, if, if Ryan or Adam or others want to talk about that. You know, uh, I've been in you know, advanced research all of my career, and uh, there are always a million reasons why technology shouldn't be considered, and people who protect the status quo. And uh, in the case of the automobile industry, in the case of many of the industries that we deal with, there are many reasons why the status quo needs to be protected. I think the purpose of the Media Lab is to demonstrate the possibilities to stimulate the imagination of those who are willing to think differently. 
Uh, and occasionally you can even get those who are not willing to think differently to think a little bit differently. And I've noticed that since I've been at the lab. Uh, I mean, the, the, the car itself might literally change the idea of what a car is to being a consumer electronics device. And you're not going to get, uh, you know, automobile manufacturers who are invested in the idea that a car is a big, expensive, dedicated device to adopt that immediately. But we do have um, people who have come through the lab from automobile manufacturers who are chartered with thinking out in the future who are beginning to absorb that idea. And we even have consumer electronics manufacturers from, from Japan and Korea who are now looking at the automobiles. So lots of resistance, lots of, uh, of, of you know, resistance to change. But I think our, our job is to inspire people to think differently and not worry about the, uh, the, th those who would resist change in some ways. You guys want to comment on that? Okay, apparently I handled that one okay. Okay. <laughs> Great. Okay. Final question now, because yes. we've got to let... Yeah. Just quickly, if you can talk about a little bit more about what you're wearing around your neck. I thought oh, okay, great. Oh, you forgot to ask me about so the oh, device, oh. you know. Yeah, no, you shouldn't show up, a uh, media lab person shouldn't show up without some gizmo, you know. That, uh, uh, this is the latest gizmo, uh, Professor Sandy Pentland uh, from the uh, Human Dynamics Group is interested in how mobile technology can be used to measure uh, group dynamics within corporations or with other social organizations. So as I'm wearing this right now, it's recording not what I'm saying, but the fact that I'm talking. It's recording those I'm interacting with. It's recording my motions. It's feeding that back wirelessly, not in this building, but in, in, uh, in, in, our, test, um, you know, in our test situations, to a centralized uh, system that can now analyze the interaction and dynamics between people in groups, uh, hopefully within companies to encourage uh, greater collaboration. Hitachi is uh, working with us in order to, uh, uh, to explore that, so is IBM. But ultimately, to look at other social situations like older people who are living alone and seeing what their patterns are, ultimately to be able to detect depression and lack of social interaction before it occurs. So this is our latest uh, wireable gizmo, and, uh, and I think we're going uh, you know, to hear, be hearing a lot more from it. Thanks for asking that. I Thank you. don't want to wear the gizmo without uh, talking yes. about it. <laughs> we just thought it was a strange fashion statement you were making. I try. But, uh, well, thank you very much for a great discussion. I think we've got a lot to look forward to in the coming, coming years coming out of the lab and the lab's relationship to other parts of MIT. And it's been great just having a chance to share some of this with the audience here today. So thank, thanks to Frank and to the Media Lab grad students who were able to participate tonight. Thank, thank you, you, Henry. Henry.